if there's anything that you can learn from my career is that you can't predict anything and the smallest connections mean the most. I got tired of waiting for permission. And I think that's something else that a lot of entertainment and media and arts people need to remember is it's so easy to get wrapped up in saying, I got to get a publisher. I got to go for this legitimacy. And there's something to be said for getting it made on your own and then being able to say, not only did I make this, I made this by myself. Welcome to Mentors on the Mic. I'm your host, Michelle Miller, a New York City native actress with credits in film, television, off-Broadway, and commercials. Every Monday, I'll bring you an incredible mentor in entertainment, focusing on how they started and how they moved up to where they are today. Thanks for listening, and let the episode begin. My guest this week is David Pepos. David is a very successful comic book writer. His debut neo-noir psychological thriller comic book, Spencer and Locke, came out in April 2017 to much fanfare. It's Calvin and Hobbes meets Sin City. Spencer and Locke was officially announced in October 2016 by The Hollywood Reporter as part of New York Comic Con. The following year, Prime Universe Films announced they had optioned the film rights. Some updates on that in the episode. In 2018, his team received five nominations, five for the 2018 Ringo Awards, given for great achievement in comics, including Best Series and Best Writer. Barnes & Noble named Spencer and Locke 2 one of the best comics and graphic novels of August 2019. Also that year, he released his next comic book series, Going to the Chapel, about a conflicted bride whose wedding is taken over by a gang of Elvis mask-wearing bank robbers. He shares with us the story of how that idea came about. The Kickstarter for his new, very exciting upcoming comic book series is live today. He spoke with us first to give us the details of his highly anticipated new comic book series. This episode is jam-packed with great advice, great stories, and great accolades. David gives us a peek at the incredibly interesting comic book world. I asked him what his first Comic-Con experience was like, and he told me all about it. He explains his various roles in entertainment, including writing press releases at CBS, writing comic book reviews for Newsarama, the ESPN of comics, literary assistant, digital content freelancer, and so forth. He walks us through creating his first comic book, complete with how he got his first illustrator, how he set up his team, the many initial rejections, including the feedback, this is the best pitch we'll never publish, and why he's choosing the Kickstarter route this time. Let's learn about the exciting world of comic books. Welcome, David Pepos. All right. Welcome. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for doing this. I was so excited when you said yes. So let's get started. Where did you start in this wonderful industry of ours? Sure. So, you know, it's funny. I did like a very kind of zigzag path through my entertainment career. I got my start uh, in comics specifically. Uh, I was an intern at DC Comics in, in 2008. Right, which was before you graduated, right? It was like between. I was right after. It was right Right after. after? Right after I graduated, I went straight to New York. Yeah, it was a wonderful experience. I learned so much. I worked on books like Batman, Green Lantern, Supergirl, The Flash. It was a wonderful experience. You know, I had 
a lot of fun, just kind of learning the ins and outs of the comics industry. I think a thing that a lot of people don't realize is it's similar to the film industry, except much more compact. Mm. Uh, You know, most books have a team of usually four core creators, but then there's, you know, there's the editors involved, there's the production staff, there's the marketing department. So there's a lot of different cogs that kind of go into this machine. It taught me kind of how to put names to all that. But like I said, my story was a zigzag. I I wound up being a a, a reporter for a while after that. Um, I I covered crime and state politics for a newspaper, uh, the Berkshire Eagle, for any of your listeners who are still in Massachusetts. Kind of on a lark, I went back to school for publishing. And through that, tripped and landed into a job in television um, at CBS. As you do. As As you you do. And, um, you well, know, it so, was a hold one- on a second. So let's yeah. go back to the internship. So did you want to go into comics right away? Did you? It was, it was my astronaut job. That's your astronaut. Um, you know, I, I, my younger siblings are in their mid twenties and they always used to ask, what do I find out what I want to do when I grow up? And I always say, well, what's your, what's your astronaut job? Mm-hmm. What's the pie in the sky? If you could do anything, if the job fairy showed up and said, this is your job, what would you do? What would just be the most fun, interesting job that you could think of? I feel like giving yourself permission is is a, a key thing um, yeah. for, for any sort of entertainment or, or, or creative industry. Yes. And, uh, and sort of believing in yourself or giving yourself a plan saying, okay, if I can make this work within this period of time, I'll stick it out. See, comics were kind of, they were always my, my, my astronaut job. I, uh, I, I've, I'm a third generation comics fan. Uh, my grandfather read comics. Yeah. Uh, my mother read comics. Uh, I'm a big comics person uh, as long as I can remember. And there's just something so collaborative and interesting, but also attainable is probably not the right word. But you know, just thinking that for a comic, all you need is a is a pen. You know, you you, you know, or if you can't draw, you, you know, you're a writer. You find an artist. You collaborate. And there's a reason why film for example, has the budgets that film does is because yeah. it's kind of a, a veritable army of people that are going into these productions. And comics, it's uh, it's much more stripped down and streamlined. It's got this very DIY indie kind of ethos to it. Yeah. And there's so much room for interpretation because every artist has their own style and every writer has their own style. Yeah. And kind of seeing, you know, uh, you know, you can have a, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, but you can also have a peanut butter and marshmallow sandwich. It's seeing these combinations coming right. together that really speaks to my love of the industry, but also speaks to a lot of my work. So when you interned there, did you think to yourself, I'd want to do this? Or did, or did you think to yourself, you wanted to yeah. create this? Were you creating growing up like comic books? Sure. I, I did a little bit of, of uh, cartooning when I was in high school, but you know that, that idea of giving yourself permission, that was yeah. really what took me a very long time to, to do. I worked with editorial when I was at DC, which is kind of, they're the ones working with all the creators and all the stories. And at the time, I thought, this sounds like a dream job. And as I got to know more about the industry, I mean, I, I love my, my experience. And I, I think I bring all that, those experiences yes, with me as, as a writer. Yeah. But I realized uh, the more I learned, the more I, I found that editorial often has um, a finite lifespan in terms of, of, of sort of a long-term career. And it's not to say that there aren't plenty of people who do stick it out and right. do rise up the ranks, but it's actually statistically harder than even being a creator. Wow. And so when I realized that a lot of the the, the parts of that job of editorial was a lot of the project management, a lot of the the time management, sort of playing traffic and psychologist and confessor and and producer, um, 
those are all jobs that I do now. Right. As, as the writer uh, of, of my, my own indie work, because I'm, tech, I'm usually my own editor, but I realized, oh, I don't get to sort of flex as much of those creative muscles as I wanted. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, but it's funny looking back, I realized, oh, I, I had a lot of experiences that I did bring with me and I just didn't yeah. give myself permission. Well, I mean, it's a great, it's a great lesson. And I know in my own sort of path, I've had to do that too, or even this podcast where I'm like, I really yeah. had to give myself permission to do something else aside from acting, even if it's just right. Yeah. Uh, it's unfortunate that that's something we have to give ourselves. And it's very sort of, I, w- I hate to say subconscious or unconscious, but there's this element of like, you know, you could just, you can't just say, I give you permission or I give right. myself permission. There has to be this actual energetic. Just internalize it. Yeah. Um, I, I, I grew up in the Midwest, so it's not like I had any industry connections whatsoever right. growing up. And I think that was a big thing for me was there was so much uh, mystery around the process, not just about the process of creating, which is already kind of felt like magic to me for, yeah. for a very long time. But the business side of it, just how do people make their livings at it, you know, and realizing, especially when once I moved out to Los Angeles, oh, there's that's kind of a cottage industry out here. You have agents, you have managers, you have lawyers, um, you have publishers, you have conventions. There's an ecosystem. Yeah. And if you figure out how that ecosystem works, you can figure out a way to thrive in it. Which is one of the reasons for this podcast is the idea of just finding the different roles and just introducing them to people who might not know yeah even exist you know or these are paths you could take yeah i mean i can tell you growing up as a kid i always thought comics were kind of made the same way that like greeting cards were made you know sort of this kind of art by committee yeah uh, very impersonal but you know if you pick up a comic or a graphic novel these days you'll see there's there's a list of credits and it it was my experience at dc that really kind of put a face to all to, to, to all these names yeah and um and that kind of made me realize like, oh, people do this for a living. You yeah. can't do this for a living. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, there is, there, it, it, is a, it, is, it is not for the faint of heart. There's certainly a path that gets to going into that. Right. But just the idea of saying, oh, this can be done. This can be done. That's the first step. Well, so, okay, so you were an intern. And then I think you also worked there for a period of time. Did that, was yeah. that right after each other or no? Yeah. So I, you know, I interned at DC right at the height of the recession. You know, it was there. <laughs> and so what, what wound up happening was, um, I, I interned there for, for a few months and it was, you know, I, I give the editors there a lot of credit. You know, it was sort of HR said, well, he's not a college student anymore. He's not even, you know, he's, he's been out for a whole summer. We, you know, we don't think we can keep him on. And uh, my editors, they all stood up for me. And so they, they actually hired me as a temp in their editorial department for another six months. Wow. You know, and I think that just that, that goes to show first off that there's a lot of moving parts to this business. And so, you know, they really do need all hands on deck. But I think that's a key thing in comics is it takes a while to prove yourself. Mm. Uh, but once you've sort of proven yourself, people are a little bit more willing to stick their neck out for you. They're a little bit more willing to give you uh, opportunities and shots that you wouldn't necessarily have gotten on your first time out. I, I yeah. think that's something that a lot of entertainment fields in general, people expect, because it's counterintuitive, they expect my first thing is going to pay for itself. My yeah. first thing is going to be swing for the fences. All I have to do is get one thing out and my path is set. Yeah. And um, 
No, the first thing you do is your business card, if you're lucky. Yeah. Sometimes it's a learning experience, but if you can get something that's a good calling card, then you can parlay that into bigger and bigger work. Yeah. So, so what was next? What was after that? So I, you know, I worked as a reporter for a while and I was, I was working on my own short scripts. I think something subconsciously was telling me maybe this is something I wanted to pursue. Yeah. And on a lark, I went back to school for publishing. Uh, Columbia has an accelerated program for publishing students. It's basically a feeder program for a lot of the different publishing houses in New York. Mm. How long was that? That was for, uh, for a summer. I was there two or three months, I believe. Okay. And it was just... It was all day classes every single day, pretty much from nine to nine. Wow. Um, and it was great. I mean, I met all of my best friends in New York at that program. It was really, it was wonderful. You know, the thing is though, you know, I, <laughs> I, I remember being so surprised that I left that program, not with a job in publishing, but with a job in television. Mm. Um, Why do you think yeah. that was? Well, it's very much a sliding door situation. Uh, you know, there's so much you can't control these things. That's another thing I, I always try to instill uh, on, on my siblings. Two out of three of my siblings are also on creative tracks. And oh. so all you can do is put yourself out there. You, that's the only way you can make your own luck. But so much of it is random chance that there's no controlling it. There's no accounting for it. I gave my resume to somebody at Simon & Schuster. And Simon & Schuster was owned by CBS. Huh. So I, uh, I had passed my resume along to this editor and they said, you know, we really like you. We, we think you're really, we think you'd be a great fit. We just don't have any assistant openings right now. Right. Would you be cool if I passed your resume along to corporate? And corporate, on the other hand, needed an editor. Wow. So I, uh, I worked there for, for, uh, for five years. Right. And it was a, it was a great experience. I think it's, it's a little counterintuitive because I feel like, you know, we spend all this time in school. We're kind of learning how to finesse creative material. Yeah. We're trying to figure out to make it as specific and personal and artistic and daring and risky as possible. Yeah. These are not adjectives you'd probably describe with CBS, uh, yeah. you know, with, with CSI and, and CIS and uh, Blue Bloods and however- I was on Blue Bloods. See? It's like all this sort of cop shows yeah. that CBS Very, is the baseline. Exactly. But, you know, you wouldn't know it, CBS's ratings at the time that I was there- they were the, the highest, highest. Uh, they're, they're, the, they're the highest of, of all the network ratings. Yep. I was in charge of writing the press releases about that. Wow. And uh, so I worked with our research department and right. I really got to pick their brain to be like, well, not for nothing. Why is that? Why is that? What's the reason? And they, they, they talked a lot about um, accessibility and consistency. Uh, you know, there are a lot of flashier shows that um, will start off with a dynamite first season and then they they'll put so much thought into that first season they won't know what to do for, for the second or third season and so all that hype all those those expectations the moment you blow them the fans leave whereas a lot of these cbs shows it's the opposite they're a slow build right so, for example the big bang theory was the highest rated comedy on television yes for years and uh, it didn't start that way but you figure out how do you leverage that? Well, you get a show like Two and a Half Men, which is really popular, and you use that as a lead-in. Right. You figure out what your competitors are airing at the same time, so you figure out what am I going to go head-to-head with. And you know, maybe you do a Super Bowl spot if you have the Super Bowl that year. It's those sorts of intangibles that have nothing to do with the creative product on top of having a creative product that you can put on any episode of NCIS and not have to watch anything prior to know what you're getting yourself into. And I feel like it's 
uh, Stan Lee had an adage like this uh, in the comics field, which was every comic is someone's first. Mm, I think so nice. CBS channeled that in in a big way. And it's something I always try to think about when I'm writing exposition in my books. Like I'm always trying to figure out, it's honestly one of the hardest parts of writing for me is saying, okay, I have a book that's got, it's about time travel and heists and spaceships. And how am I going to reintroduce that every single issue in a way that I'm not repeating myself and I'm not boring? Right. So I learned a lot at CBS. I think though, probably the most important thing I learned over there was taking a rest and and being a little restless. Um, I was there for five years and I, you know, I, long time. I left that job. You know, I didn't take that lightly. I mean, it was, it was a stable job. It was a comfortable job. And I had, at the time I had, I was feeling restless. So I started writing again. I, Mm. I, uh, I wrote a few screenplays. I wrote the first issue of my, my first comic Spencer and Locke. I wrote that in my office. I wrote that on my lunch break. And uh, I was like, this was the first thing I'd ever written that was longer than a few pages that I said, oh, I really like this. Maybe I'll put this together. And so I had sold that book about six months before I left. Um, Oh, so was that an impetus for leaving or? Yeah. Well, I think part of it was, I said, well, if I'm going to roll the dice, I guess I'm not getting any younger. And, you know, I was, I was really fortunate, you know, that, that, that I have a really supportive partner who she was, she was willing to pick up from New York and sort of go uh, almost sight unseen to, to, to Los Angeles. I say that's the other thing that I think has always helped me as a creator is there are some people who you meet who don't get what you do. And they don't either understand that you're taking a risk or you're expressing yourself or they don't understand, you know, the necessity of art. I think okay. especially now in the pandemic, everybody who sat and watched a, a binge to a show on Netflix yeah. knows how rejuvenating art can be in yeah. the face of adversity. But there are a lot of people who don't get it. Or there are a lot of people who say, well, you know, there needs to be a certain level of stability or a certain level of consistency or a certain uh, amount of routine. And of course, that's not the way the arts work, no. um, uh, or at least certainly not at first. So I think having a, uh, you know, a partner who you click with, that, you're, is, that, that, that who gets that, it, who gets you, who sees you. I've always said, um, you know, my partner is my first reader. Um, yeah. Uh, she, she reads everything in part just to kind of have like a human tether. You know, somebody who's not immersed in all this comics, uh, esoteric stuff, but having sort of just somebody who who knows you kind of gets who, what you're about and says, okay, does this connect? Does this translate? Yeah. And if it doesn't, then it's back to the drawing board. Yeah. But yeah, I think just to, to, to get back to your, to your question, CBS was so comfortable that it kind of made me think there needed to be more. Yeah. And so I rolled the dice and here I am now. Right. Yeah. So uh, dice, dice well rolled, if you will. Yeah. So you did say that you sold your, your book and then six months later. So how did you sell your book? What was that process yeah. like? So the comics industry is a little bit different than traditional book publishing, um, although th- it is starting to change a bit. Um, there, there are several different markets out there. There's what's called the direct market, which sells to comic shops. There, it's Marvel, it's DC, it's The Walking Dead. Um, you have the book market, you have Scholastic, you have Random House, um, Simon Schuster. They're starting to push really hard on the graphic novel front. 
And then you have, you know, online sellers like Kickstarter, you have conventions where you sell in person. Um, the direct market is kind of my bread and butter at, at the moment. They, they really kind of do the most adult oriented fare. Not to say that Simon & Schuster or Scholastic aren't yeah. starting to go in that trajectory. But the benefit of the direct market is you don't need an agent. Mm. Um, you, it's very much a networking game. And I guess I should have mentioned this earlier. I always kept a toe in the comics industry, even after I left DC. I wrote for over a decade as a reviewer at the comic news site, Newsarama. Saw that. And uh, they're kind of like um, the best way to describe them is they're kind of like the ESPN of comics. Mm. Um, and so I rose up the ranks I, I, and became the reviews editor. So wait, how um, did you start there? So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. The, the, the connections you make never, even the people you don't think you never should view your relationships as transactional. It's right. always just, you never know where somebody's going to wind up. So yeah. you might as well, just be as friendly and nice and easy to work with as possible. Yes. Especially when you're I agree. 100%. So one of my assistant editors on Batman was a woman named uh, Janelle Aslan. Super wonderful person. She had just started shortly before I, I joined as an intern. And she was actually an alum of Newsarama's review team. Mm. And so when I was looking for work... And I said, nobody's hiring. It's 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 the end of two thousand eight. It's the recession. Yeah, I know you got your I know you got your start there. Would you be able to introduce me to somebody? And so she introduced me to Troy Brownfield, who was the reviews editor at the time. He grew up to be kind of my big one of my big industry mentors. I mean, we talk at least weekly. I was just on the phone with him earlier today. So Troy Troy was my predecessor as the reviews editor, and and I think he and I clicked pretty quickly. You know, I was sort of young and looking to make my name, and yeah. he was looking for some just to throw as many bodies at kind of this avalanche of content. And right. so I dove in every chance I got. And so was this paid right away, or is this an unpaid position? It for started. A bit? It started unpaid, which is something that I think is a little harder to fly ten years later. But I thought to myself, well, it's just something to have a line on your resume. Yeah. And it took, I think it was only like a month or two before I, I started getting paid because they, they quickly realized like, oh, he's contributing like 80% of the reviews right now. Wow. And you kept it with it, that even was, throughout yeah, throughout your um, other stuff. You're still there. It's still... still. Yeah. It's been an interesting process. I've always, I've always said Newsarama is the longest relationship I've ever had. It's, you know, it's been a, a wonderful home base. I feel like I learned, I always say that between my time at DC and my time at Newsarama, I learned just enough about comics to barely push my first comic across the finish line. Mm. There are so many things that you just don't know. Until you um, do it, maybe? Until you do it. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it can be very academic. But I feel like now, I feel like a mechanic who's been able to like take his own engines apart and put them together. Yeah. And Newsarama is a big part of that. And I, I feel like in certain ways, it was the best possible training to be a comics writer and possibly the worst possible way to sell myself as one. Mm. Um, we talked earlier about how comics, once you get a chance to prove yourself and you do it, people start to give you a little bit more latitude. But what happened with me is a lot of people thought, well, if he could have written a comic, he would have written a comic. But since, you know, it's sort of those who can't do teach, those who can't write review. You know, I think th there's some element of truth to that. I think I've always said that Fencer and Locke in particular was a very personal book to me. And 
I would not have been able to write that any sooner than I did. I just, I, I didn't have the, the, I wasn't experienced enough, like as a person. But the benefit was I, you know, I pitched that book all over town and every rejection we got made me kind of dig my heels in a little more. I said, this book looks so good. And I, I, I feel so strongly about the writing that come hell or high water, I'll Kickstarter this thing out of spite if I have to. So who did you pitch it to? Who are these rejections from? So I pitched it pretty much anybody you can think of in the industry. Image Comics, Dark Horse, Boom Studios, uh, IDW. Um, I got a very nice rejection from a publisher who I won't, I won't name names because I consider them a buddy. But they okay. said, uh, this is the best pitch we'll never publish. Oh, um, did you understand which, why or did you at the time go like... I, I, I totally understand. For those who, who aren't familiar with my book, Spencer and Locke, um, it's the high concept is what if Calvin and Hobbes grew up in Sin City? Yeah. And we have our flashbacks specifically in that kind of Bill Watterson cartoony style. Mm. And so I understand why that was a little bit of a hot potato. You don't read Calvin and Hobbes thinking about PTSD and childhood trauma. Yeah. But I saw the connection. Yeah. It wasn't until I reached out to Action Lab, which was one of the few publishers that I had no personal connections to whatsoever. No huh. ties. They had they they had never once even sent me a review PDF. Wow. And uh, so I emailed them cold. I got really lucky. Like I said, there's a lot of variables that you cannot account for. Yeah. And so I remember emailing a PDF right after work one day. My work computer had Adobe Acrobat, so I could work on my PDF, uh, whereas I, my, my home laptop didn't. Yeah. So I remember I, I was staying home from uh, staying, staying after work, catching up on some paperwork, working on this PDF, and I sent it. It was probably like 6.30 or 7 in the evening. And about 20 minutes later, I got an email back from my editor, Dave Dwanch, who is sort of my second big industry mentor. And he was like, so how soon do you think you can get this book done? <laughs> I've never had a pitch go by that fast ever. That, that's pretty quick. It, it, it is, that is not the norm. It does not, it has never happened to me like that ever again. I realized, oh, this book is going to happen now. I guess I have to write it. Yeah, that was kind of the beginning of my relationship with, with Action Lab, which was, has been my home publisher for a long time. Yeah, it just kind of started the snowball rolling for everything that came after that. Yeah. So what, what was next? What was after? Sure. Well, you know, it's funny. So I wrote Spencer in Law kind of on a lark. We talk about how, how you have to convince yourself to yeah. do this stuff. And when I worked at the newspaper in the Berkshires, I had a three month period where I wrote a short script every single day. Short comic script. Wow. I think it was like between six to eight pages, just a beginning, middle, cliffhanger resolution, just to get the structure down and to figure out how not to be so attached to my concepts. Yeah. Because I think that's a hard thing that I still struggle with is that I find a concept and I fall in love with it and then somebody does something just like it and I got to throw it out and it hurts. It's like, so that was sort of my attempt at trying to teach myself that. You know, I worked on a couple screenplays. I just met my partner who is a, a voracious reader. And so when I told her that I was thinking about working in a screenplay, she was very excited and she was really excited to read it. So it took me a little bit, but I said, maybe I'll write a comic. I wrote the first issue of Spencer and Locke without any sort of like, I just wrote it just to see how it would feel. And as soon as I finished it, I was like, oh, yeah, I really like this. Maybe I'll pitch it to an artist just to see how that feels, mm. just to see how it feels. And so I, I met uh, uh, artist Jorge Santiago Jr. He had just graduated from uh, the Savannah College of Art and Design. He How'd was, you find was, him? I looked at all the art schools. Yeah. Um, anybody like, uh, you know, 
we talk about sort of being young and, and, and hungry after, after you graduate. And he, so I knew there were places like SCAD, SVA, the Kubert School, RISD, just to name a few. And so I looked, anybody who had a portfolio that said one of these things, I, I checked them out, I sent an email. I probably emailed 40 people. Yeah. And I think I only got three or four responses. Which is and crazy, right? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a numbers game. Yeah. Um, I always say I survived online dating in New York and that's very good practice for right. um, any sort of creative field. A lot of numbers, a lot of rejection, and a lot of not taking a person. I, I, we often, um, as actors, compare like finding an agent or a manager to online yeah. dating or to dating itself, just because you're like yeah. you're not married to them yet. So maybe you're freelancing, and then when you finally do commit, it's like a mm-hmm. whole thing. Yep. Um, did you have to pay him as an so, artist? Yeah. So we worked at we worked out a deal just in terms of like, okay, here's what we can do for these first pages, and. Subsequently, I had to make that same different sorts of arrangements for for the rest of our team. Mm. Colin Bell was our letterer, and I had actually known him through. Um, he used to be a reviewer of mine at Newsarama before he decided to become a professional letterer. So he was kind of the established person on our team. I was like, Colin, I don't know any letterers. Can you do me a solid? Jason Smith, meanwhile, he was the the hardest person to find. I mean, he's kind of like the, the the third heat of the team. For those who don't really know about the production process of comics, you try to make it as assembly line as possible because you're working on very tight deadlines. So anything you can split to another person, it's in your best interest. To yeah, do so. that makes sense. And so usually you will have a, what's called a line artist. They'll sort of, they'll either do just the pencils, which is kind of just the foundation of the art, or they'll do pencils and inks, which is sort of the full black and white artwork. But you, they're usually sort of running, running the clock so hard. Give the colors to somebody else is usually the way that, that, that it. it works. Finding a color artist is, I would say, just as important as finding a good line artist, perhaps even more important. One of my editors, Mike Martz, he used to say that good colors can elevate any art and bad colors can tank even the strongest artists. Mm. And it's very much like a marriage. It's finding the right colorist for the right artist. I, yeah. I always apologize to my colorists up front <laughs> saying, hey, especially for the first few pages, there's going to be a lot of notes because I want to make sure that this is a good arrangement. And it, and it often takes me a while. I don't think I've ever worked in a project where the first person I approached wound up being the last colorist I worked with. Mm. And yeah, Jason was a tough one. I had gone through two colorists already and um, it just wasn't the right fit. I remember kind of throwing my hands up and just posting on Facebook saying, Hey, I'm in desperate need of a colorist. Does anybody know anybody good? And uh, a friend of mine, Taylor Esposito, who uh, is another letterer who I, I didn't know very well. Yeah. He said, you should reach out to my pal, Jason Smith. He's really good. Jason is really good. Um, but having those three together, suddenly this isn't like hypothetical anymore. Now it's like suddenly, a team. It's a team and you start seeing pages coming together and you realize as the writer, you're the weak link here. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's sort of like the proud papa moment where you're kind of like, oh, yeah, these pages look really good. Yeah. So yeah, that's, and I think that always fuels me. I have a Kickstarter coming up, for example. Yeah. And part of the reason for that is because I liked the idea when I came up with it. Although when I first came up with it and an editor asked me to develop it, I was a little kind of skeptical. I was like, this is the bottom of my list. I don't know how much I like it. As I developed it, I really started to find something. But once I got an artist, an art team on board, then I had told them, this thing is getting made come hell or high water. And that was part of the reason why we went, we're, we're doing a Kickstarter for it now is because I 
I got tired of waiting for permission. And I think that's something else that a lot of entertainment and media and arts people need to remember is it's so easy to get wrapped up in saying, I got to get a publisher. I got to go for this legitimacy. And there's something to be said for getting it made on your own and then being able to say, not only did I make this, I made this by myself. Yeah. There's more agency to it. Yeah. You know, you don't have to, thankfully, I've been really fortunate that I've never had to jump through a lot of hoops for my work. But this in particular, I just was kind of like, all right, I wrote the whole thing. My team is halfway through the the whole series right now. There's no compromise to it, which is something that you don't always get a lot of in commercial art. That's true. Well, so let's go back. So Spencer and Locke. So it's now been purchased. Yeah. When does it go out into the world? How is that reaction? Sure. Because I want to get to the Kickstarter, but I want to give it like proper due. So Spencer and Locke, we signed the paperwork on that Christmas of 2015. And we had to turn it in, all four issues, the following Halloween of 2016. Okay. For it to come out April of 2017, which is when it came out. Got it. I have always said sort of my benchmark for making comics is if I can get a full 20 to 22 page issue done in two months, I feel pretty good about it. Yeah. I always take a good benchmark for making comics. I say about two months to make an issue. It's not quite at the level of a Marvel or a DC because they're working with much higher budgets and and much more experienced talent. But for me, sort of at my stage of my career, if I can get an issue done every two months, I I feel pretty good about it. So we, yeah, we took about 10 months, I think, to finish the first volume of Spencer and Locke. And at the time, I I had just moved out to LA. We were in the process of, I think we had finished issue one shortly after I moved out. Okay. Still three issues that that I was working on in the middle of it. And uh, I was working uh, an assistant gig at a management company at the time. I always say whoever works jobs in as assistants, always be nice to them because it is it was the hardest job I'd ever worked. Wow. I, I, I learned very quickly I was not built for it. I was assisting uh, seven different managers and uh, it was it was a lot. It was a lot to juggle on top of sort of getting this book out and put together. Yeah. Thankfully, people liked it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I knew walking into that book, Calvin and Hobbes meets Sin City. That is a book that whether it succeeds or fails, it will do so loudly. Yeah. And uh, that was part of the appeal was just, you know, I didn't write the book for shock value's sake. There are certainly some moments that are shocking in it, but I think we we justify them. It's all right. sort of in this greater story of post-traumatic stress and childhood trauma and kind of, can we come back from that? You know, what are the sorts of mechanisms that we take to survive? In Detective Locke's case, it's uh, imagining a seven-foot-tall blue panther named Spencer. Yeah, I left no stone unturned. One of the benefits of having worked at Newsarama was I knew the lay of the land in terms of press. Right. Um, even though I, I wasn't particularly. I, I only knew of a lot of the people running these sites. We we, we didn't really have any any sort of professional direct affiliation or direct yeah. like connection to them. But I, I think being able to say, hey, you know. I've written a newsrama for a long time. I've always really enjoyed your site. Could I send you a PDF of this comic that I'm sort of I'm sort of jumping to the other side? I think that was the fact that everyone was able to give us a chance, yeah. and then to see, oh, this art looks really good and really professional, and to see, oh, hey, this kind of incendiary high concept that you have—it's not you just 
being an edge lord. You know, it's yeah, it's you actually justifying it with some actual character work, right? Because I feel like shock value get, might get your foot in the door, right? One issue, they'll very quickly see through it if there's nothing else to it. Um, yeah, and also I just you know as a creator, I mean I don't ever want to be exploitive. Yeah, no, I get I mean, that. I, and I and I think it was I always took it as a, as a as a real compliment. You know, we we had readers come up to me at conventions, and they're like, you know, I came from kind of an abusive upbringing, and the book really meant a lot to me. Yeah. And um, you know, I I I would never claim that I came from an abusive upbringing. My parents were 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 very excited that that I was writing a book. My mother's been had been telling me for years she wanted me to be a writer. Yeah. But um, getting that kind of reaction is um. It's it means a lot. It's impactful. Yeah, especially for a first time writer. Yeah, you know it's funny. The thing is, I didn't know if I was going to do another book. Mm. Um, Right? Is it like in the normal like if you write something, you don't know if it's going to happen again? Well, it was more of, (laughs) especially with that book. I thought if people hate this book, I might not be allowed to write another book. And in part, I kind of left it all on the field with that book. Like we we have car chases and we have science fiction and we have dinosaurs and every kind of crazy thing that I thought was cool as a kid, I threw it into that book mm. because I said, well, I want my poor artist to have a portfolio piece if like... <laughs> if, if this, this doesn't tanks, work out. <laughs> if this book tanks. And also, if this is the only book I ever write, I want to feel good that I did it. So with Spencer and Locke then, what were like one or a couple of the top highlights of just yeah. having well, um, that... The biggest, we, we were nominated for five uh, Mike Waringo uh, Comic Book Industry Awards. I think we were the single highest nominated book that year. Wow. Um, uh, we were nominated for Best Series, Best Writer, Best Cover Art, Best Colorist, and Best Letterer. So every single member of our core team got nominated for something, which really meant a lot. Yeah. I think my favorite part, I mean, we were going up against massive... The uh, big wigs. Uh, I, I was literally up against Neil Gaiman for a best writer award. Yeah. So no way I'm winning that, but yeah. it's, it's a cool, it's a cool brag. But I think my favorite moment in all this, you know, my partner and I, we went to Baltimore uh, for Baltimore Comic-Con to go to the awards ceremony. And um, as, as we're waiting in the lobby and I'm talking with some people, somebody taps my shoulder and I look over and it's my mother. My mom had called the event organizers and asked if she could get a ticket. That's really me. sweet. So it was, it was wonderful. I mean, that's on camera. You need to post that somewhere. Yeah. Uh, yes. I, I, I have a photo of my mother and I in front of the, 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 the Ringo logo. So it was nice having, you know, sort of the, the two most important women in my, of my life sitting on each side of me, you know, and, and uh, yeah, it was, I don't remember a ton of that night. I was super nervous, Yeah. Um, but that was, was a, was a real highlight. I think some of the other things, um, you know, we were options pretty quickly into the process, which was, uh, which was incredible. Well, can you explain um, that to people just in case they don't know what that means? Yeah. So being optioned is um, either a studio or a producer or a production company. They will say, hey, we want to develop your book. We right. want to make Spencer and Locke into a movie, for example. And we would like the exclusive right to kind of shop this around right. to directors, to actors, to screenwriters, to studios, to financiers, to, to see if we can get something going. You know, you can't, if there's anything that you can learn from my careers that you can't predict anything and the smallest connections need the most. Okay. So for example, you know, with our, with that option that we got in 2017, we got it through my local comic shop. Wow. Uh, yeah. Adrian Iscaria, who is the producer of the Hitman series, 
shopped at the comic book in Culver City. And the owner of the store at the time, Mike Wellman, who now runs Atomic Basement Comics in Long Beach. Mike has been such a champion supporter of me since literally the day we met. I walked into the comic book as my local comic shop in Los Angeles. It was the nearest one. They had a branch in Manhattan Beach, uh, which is sort of the South Bay area where I was staying with uh, family when we first moved out here. And I walked into that store saying, hey, I have a comic book that's coming out. We haven't announced it yet. But, you know, you're my local shop. So I wanted to introduce myself. And Mike treated me like a king from the moment I walked in. And so Mike's been in my corner since day one. And so when Adrian walked in saying, hey, you got any new comics that you like? He goes, hey, this book Spencer and Locke drops tomorrow. And the creator gave me an early copy. Yeah. So it's... That's great. And the thing is, is like, we got really lucky. Like, you know, Adrian really wanted that he wanted to announce that book in The Hollywood Reporter. And that got a lot of buzz for, for the book. I've had other work options since then that they have chosen not to announce or they were saying, let's wait until we have XYZ member of the team. Right. There are times I talk about it privately, you know, when I'm pitching books to other editors, it's not, sometimes you get books optioned. And in fact, a lot of people will get their books optioned and it, they don't announce it. You know, that's right. sort of the, the people optioning it want to sort of put their cards a little close to the, to the vest. Yeah. But the success of that book made me think, Oh, I guess I got to do another one. And so I, I left my job, uh, my assistant job. I wanted to kind of commit as fully as I could. Yeah. Uh, you know, Especially you had other people now holding you accountable for it. Yeah. We had fans uh, demanding sequels. Um, Your team. You had, team, you know, yeah. My team wanted. Yeah. So I, I'm trying to remember which came first. I had ideas for Spencer and Locke sequels for a while. I'm actually at working on the the third volume now as we speak. But we did our second volume. We did Calvin and Hobbes versus Beetle Bailey for our sequel. Oh, yeah. Kind of like uh, The Dark Knight meets The Deer Hunter. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it was... uh, So I'm I'm trying to remember if I started that first or my my latest book, Going to the Chapel, which was kind of Die Hard at a Wedding. Mm, Okay. Um, I was the best man at my oldest friend's wedding. And long story short, he's in North Carolina. Here he was in North Carolina. I was in California. I got struck with a kidney stone the week of his bachelor party. So I could not. Not only could I not make the bachelor party, but then everything I planned for the bachelor party just completely disintegrated, like on impact. (laughs) The Airbnb crashed. I had rented sumo suits for the backyard, not knowing the backyard was at a 45 degree angle. What are the odds that a backyard would be at a 45 degree angle? It was everything, everything that could go wrong did go wrong. And I said to myself, as I was sitting in California on painkillers, I said, well, at least it didn't happen during the wedding. And then I thought, but what if it did? And so the idea, this kernel of the world's worst wedding, what could possibly happen? that turned into going to the chapel. I realized very quickly, the wor- I, at first I thought maybe if the father of the bride hired some leg breakers, that would be the worst thing that would happen. And then I realized very quickly, no, that's not the worst thing that could happen. The worst thing that could happen is that the bride got cold feet. And that became kind of the kernel of the story is, is, is about this wealthy bride who she's not sure she can go through with it. And before she can say anything, a gang of Elvis-themed bank robbers takes over the wedding. They're trying to steal this multi-million dollar diamond that's on loan for the event. And unfortunately, the hostages do not cooperate. And the whole heist gets blown. The police surround the chapel. 
And this bride has to become the ringleader of her own hostage situation to get out of it. That's a great concept. We, we always said love is the ultimate hostage situation. That book, similar to Spencer and Locke, I pitched that all over town. And I can't tell you how many people told me, well, we don't know how to sell a rom-com. And I said, well, it's, it is a rom-com, but it's also like a heist thriller. Um, both, yeah. You know, I, I say it's, it's uh, Ocean's Eleven meets Arrested Development at a wedding. <laughs> You know, Action Lab, I give them a lot of credit. They've never been one for being super self-conscious about the things that they publish. They've got a very wide variety of material ranging from the Netflix show Miraculous. They do the comics adaptation for that. All the way to very not safe for work fair, like their Danger Doll Squad books. My books are sort of somewhere in that middle, neither fish nor fowl. I worked on those books, I think, concurrently. I think I wrote Spencer and Locke 2 first just because we already had the team in place and they were desperate to get started on literally anything. But Chapel, we were working on that, I think, side by side. And so the books came out back to back. How do you think that helped each other? You know, I think, you know, they say a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. Spencer and Locke is very much a book that appeals to the direct market. Um, it's, it's by comics fans, for comics fans. Um, anybody who's ever read the Sunday Funnies kind of gets the, the in-jokes that we're making. Yeah. Whereas going to the chapel, I consider it to be counter-programming. Mm. It's a crime book, but it's also a rom-com. It's set at a wedding. There are a lot of both men and women and, and, and non-binary who look at the idea of rom-coms with a sneer. They think, it's, they, they think it'll make them seem dumb or basic. They think that they're predictable or shallow. By being able to take kind of a genre twist on it, I was able to say, look, all these things that you don't like. For example, you see a lot of rom-com posters where you know who's going to wind up together just based on the poster, just based on who's, who's top billing. And so having a, like a, a, a hard love triangle at the heart of this book and having compelling reasons why she should go for either Jesse, her in, in, intended fiance, or Tom, the leader of the, uh, the bank robbing bad Elvis gang, <laughs> or staying single, you know, there That's are an option. lots of, That's a viable option. It's a viable option. So leaving that uncertainty, I think, you know, a lot of people, when they see rom-com, they might be like, I don't know. But if they see rom-com by the guy who wrote Spencer and Locke, right. with advertising for going to the chapel on every issue of Spencer and Locke, I think it certainly helps. So just because we have to probably wrap this up soon, yeah. I wanted to, to, to go over two things. One, because I've always been curious. I've never been to a Comic-Con. So how oh. is it to go? How is it to work it, to have people come up to you? What's that sure. like? Um, you know, I, I always take comfort and safety behind the safety of my table. Um, comic conventions are uh, agoraphobic people's worst nightmares. Um, very crowded. Um, I think I want to say uh, Comic-Con um, uh, has 150,000 people. San Diego or New York, wow. or both, huge amounts of people. So being behind a table, I don't have to navigate it as much. I always see it as being kind of a carnival barker. I always say that talking about the books is way easier than making the books. And so being able to stop a stranger and say, Hey, do you like Calvin and Hobbes? Let me introduce you to your new favorite book. That is, I can, I can do my Spencer and Locke pitch in my sleep. At this point, it's muscle memory and having people pick up the book and then the next day be so excited about it. That is a thrill that, uh, I would be hard pressed to replicate anywhere else. So yeah, I, and, and I consider it as work. I mean, I'm very bad at the networking side of it. I still have to really kind of force myself. They have what's called BarCon every night. They pick a hotel bar. A lot of creators show up. I'm still working on that. At this point, I'm at the point of my career. I want my work to speak for itself. Mm. I know that there's sort of this thought of, well, he was a reviewer for so long. Is he a tourist? 
I am sort of, I've been working to show people, no, I'm here for the long haul. I'm not leaving. Yeah. Well, okay. So there's so much there. Uh, Okay. So no, there really is. Okay. So let's, so you're, you're, you have these comic books now. You have a following. You have people who love you, right? And who love your work. At least my mother. Yeah. Yeah. No, and definitely fans too. (laughs) I mean, I I think you posted recently that you just reached like 400 pages of comic strips written this, this year, year. I think. Yeah. That's amazing. And that's a huge feat. The the pandemic's given me a lot of focus. (laughs) Right. So now we're doing this Kickstarter, right? Yeah. So can you tell us this Kickstarter is now up and live this week? Yeah. This well, so um, you know, this and will this be the plays. first time. Yes. This will be the first time that I have spoken about it. So yeah, this book that we're we're kickstarting, uh, which I had codenamed Project Saffron. Uh, <laughs> the the title of the book I, I can I can say here it's called the OZ. It's what if Mad Max took place in the Wizard of Oz. Wow. Uh, the OZ is is short for the Occupied Zone. It's uh, you know everybody's heard the story of the Wizard of Oz. Dorothy, you know she she kills the Wicked Witch. She and the wizard leave. And my thought is that invites a, an entirely brutal power vacuum. Wow. Oz would be turned into Baghdad. And so this story is, follows uh, Dorothy's granddaughter, who's uh, an Iraq war veteran, who she's kind of grappling with her own feelings of trauma and guilt from her time overseas. And she's back in Kansas taking care of her ailing grandmother, who keeps telling her all these crazy stories of another world on the other side of the rainbow. When a tornado strikes... This new Dorothy finds herself in this in this war zone called the Occupied Zone, and she's going to have to navigate these factions led by her grandmother's former friends. So we wow. have wow, yeah, we have the Tin Soldier, we have the Scarecrow, we have uh, the the Courageous the lion. lion. Yeah, she's going to have to kind of put all of her skills to the test and really face her past if she hopes to survive the OZ. This sounds great. I, um, I mean, I know you Spencer and Lock pitch in your sleep, but that was that was pretty effective. Thank you. I'm really excited for this one. We've been working on this book since 2017. That's how long this book has been in development. My team, artist Ruben Rojas, colorist Whitney Kogar, uh, letterer DC Hopkins, and we've got a murderer's row of cover talent working on, on covers for this book. This book, we've gotten a lot of interest from a lot of different publishers. And because of COVID, everything kind of got put on hold. I thought to myself, you know, I've, I've wanted to do Kickstarter for a long time. It's a different market than, than somebody who buys stuff just from bookstores or just from Amazon or just from conventions. And I've said, you know, this book has been burning a hole in my pocket. I, uh, why do, I shouldn't wait. Why wait? And I think that's maybe the, the thing that I should leave all of your listeners for is don't wait. You will never regret going for it now. The only thing that the only thing you'll regret by going for it now is thinking, why didn't I do this sooner? So, yeah, we're very excited about this project. It's going to be the first of, of three issues that we'll be okay. kickstarting over the course of the next uh, of the next nine months. Yeah, it is everything you think you know about the Wizard of Oz. If you like Mad Max, if you like the Old Guard, yes, you you know you're gonna really you're gonna enjoy this book a lot. I think it's I think it's one of the best things I've ever written. You know, we talk a lot about. You know, a lot of the themes that I've talked about in Spencer and Locke about trauma and kind of overcoming that. But we also talk about kind of morality and wartime in this. And, you know, is there such a thing as a moral decision when every decision involves someone dying? And so we're able to take, mm. you know, people ask, why do you take these childhood properties and, and try to scaffold them with such heavy themes? And I think it's because nostalgia is its own form of clarity. 
its own form of innocence. Those are the memories that we have of the world before things were so complex. That's so true. And so taking these materials, it's very universal. And it's very, I think we're able to kind of do a deeper dive into these heavier themes because we all know who Dorothy is. We all know who the Tin Man is. Yeah. And sort of seeing those characters that we know navigate this new environment. Yeah, it really, it's it's a different way to look at, I think, some real world issues. So two and questions on that. One, yeah. what would this money be, gen- like what would be yeah. raising money for specifically? Sure. Is it to publish these books? Is it? Yeah, so our, the money that we're, we're raising for Kickstarter, we're hopefully by the time this goes live, we'll be well on our way towards our $6,000 goal. And I say, look, anybody who goes into comics looking to make a ton of money is in the wrong business. Our money at this point is going towards recouping our art and production costs and our print fees. You know, beyond that, it's really just kind of getting our first issue out there. I just sent an email to, to my family about this this morning, actually, explaining to them Kickstarter is uh, it's not a charity. Um, it's a pre-order system. Yeah. And so, you know, we've said any money that, you know, once we break our goal, any money that we we have will just go towards the next issue. We're looking at, I believe this series is going to be 140 pages okay. uh, when it's all said and done, broken up over three double, double plus sized issues. And do you have um, an idea for some of the prizes or some of the, not yeah, gifts, but we've the got, incentives? We've got, we've got a, yeah, we've got a lot of really cool incentives that we're working on right now. You know, we're, we have a bunch of behind the scenes stuff that, that we'll be uh, giving away through most of the tiers. Uh, we've also got four different covers for the collector's market. Nice. We've got got an extra special prize, barring COVID and convention schedule. I will travel to a shop of your choosing to do it to do a signing. That's, That's our, great. That's a great top, one. Our, our top prize. There's no place like home. Yeah. Oh, um, love the name. Just yeah. You know, and we 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 do have a, a few really exciting prizes at every level of the reward system, including starter PDFs for uh, my previous books, Spencer right. and Mark and going Perfect. to Perfect. Love so it. That way, if you don't, if you don't know who I am, yeah, even if you, you, even if you go for the lowest possible tier, you'll get the first two issues. For, uh, I the love first it. So yeah, it's uh, and we've got a few other things, uh, a few you'll, other exciting things. That, you'll that, leave for that. You'll leave yeah. for the site. And yeah. so, where can we people find this Kickstarter, or sure. if, or like where can they follow you to then yeah. be led to that? Sure. Well, they can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. David Pepos Comics on Facebook. And just Pepos D on Twitter and, and Instagram. And I'll include that in the show notes and stuff. Yeah, you can also you can sign up for the uh, the Kickstarter page right now. The quick link is bit.ly slash Project Saffron. It's just one word that has been my code name for this project for uh, well over a year, and it's gonna it's gonna be very weird for people knowing what the book is actually about. Yeah. The, yeah, I was gonna say um, I should in theory have my website up by then, davidpepos.com. Yeah, you know, like we've always said, every Kickstarter backer matters. Projects for those who aren't aware of them, they're all or nothing. So yeah. if we don't get our goal, we get nothing. Right. This is the kind of project that if you like action, if you like sort of that psychological groundedness, if you like just kind of badass action heroines, you know, like Sarah Connor or, or Ripley, you're going to love this book. I'm so proud of it. I'm so proud of our team. And that's part of the reason why I'm kind of going out on a limb with Kickstarter is this book is too good to not be seen. And I can't wait for the rest of the world to see what my collaborators have been up to. Wow. I love that. I just, I want to end it on that, but I did have another question and Maybe. I feel like I should ask. So I know you said that, well, at least Spencer and Locke was optioned pretty quickly. Yeah. Any sort of news or development of something being put on its feet into a different, different medium? Yeah. Well, 
I, uh, how much can you say? Yeah. There, well, I'm trying to think of what I can say. Uh, so, suffice to say, I've got homes on stuff that have, that hasn't been announced yet. Good homes on stuff. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, what I can say is I've got a really good team out here in Hollywood. And, um, I think that we've had a lot of really people that I wouldn't be, that I was surprised wanted to work with us who were reaching out saying, we want to work with you. And so, you know, of course, with COVID, everything is is very much up in the air. Right. But the fact that we have Those been able people. to establish relationships with names as, as, as big as the names as we have, especially this early in my career, you know, it's it's the cherry on top. I mean, it's, you know, ultimately, of course, like multimedia consideration is wonderful. It, it, it adds a little bit more money it, it, it you know but at the same time the comics that's where i came from yeah that's sort of that's my first consideration um my thought is if i can make this a good comic everything else will follow i certainly didn't expect any sort of multimedia interest with spencer and Locke, for example and i think it just it was a good lesson in that if you stay true to yourself and your vision you will find people who will respond to that i love um, that that's such a great line. I know, especially when you're starting out, you want as many people to like you as possible. Yeah. You know, going back to the online dating metaphor, no, you don't want to put on, you don't want to put on a face to, to try to please as many people as possible. You want to be you and as unapologetically you as possible because masks slip. Honesty doesn't. And I think just being, being yourself is really kind of a, the, the most important thing you can do as an artist and as a creator. Because from there, all the rest of the, the work will follow. Well, we have to end it on that because that's just such, I might use that as an opening statement. But um, thank, you. thank you so much for oh, this. It's my pleasure. This has been so fantastic. I personally feel really have learned so much about your field. I've been supporting you for a while now on wow. Facebook, just like, because I think I it's amazing it. what you've done and what you're continuing to do. I really wanted to sit down with you and actually talk about what it is you're working on, what of kind course. of projects and, and just the, the overall journey of how you got to where you are today. Cause I Thank mean, you, you are very young to be having this much behind your belt and so much more to come. And I just, I think Thank it's you. amazing and very impressive. Well, thank you so much for having me and thank you for all your support and thank you for these great questions. I, I, uh, it's so easy, especially now during COVID to kind of just have tunnel vision on the scripts. And that's part of the reason why I've written as much as I have. Yeah. But being able to talk is, is nice. And so I yeah. really appreciate you uh, lending us some, some, some spotlight and some support. It really means a lot. Of course, of course. And thank you again. Thank you. This week, I wanted to read another wonderful review, guys. I'm really enjoying reading them. These have been so fantastic. This one is from David Herrera 91, titled, This is so good with clap emojis in between. I appreciated that. This podcast is amazing and incredibly informative. Not only is the podcast great for anyone pursuing any career in the entertainment industry, it's ideal for entrepreneurs and the like. Anybody looking to improve in their own careers, life, or relationships are sure to gain some fantastic nuggets of information or inspiring stories to help them along on their journey. Michelle truly deserves all of the props. She asks such great questions and really connects with the guests she speaks with. Thank you, Michelle, for bringing us this podcast. Can't wait for more. Thank you, David. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate anybody who's written a review. If you're enjoying the podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review 
any of the episodes, the podcast as a whole, I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to Mentors on the Mic. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend you know would love it. Let me know what you learned or what stayed with you on our Instagram, at Mentors on the Mic. I will be sharing even more information about our mentors. These are crazy times, and now more than ever, it's so important to connect. Talk to someone about what you learned today who would really appreciate it, and send them the episode. Also, if you love the show, please go ahead and leave us a rating on iTunes. I'm choosing a review to read on our next episode. It really makes a huge difference in growing this. Thanks.